Welcome back. Welcome to Decision Space, the only show to take place right here in the space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Jake Friedman. And I'm Brendan Hansen. And this is the podcast about decisions in games. And this is the episode where we continue our discussion on balance in games. What does balance mean? What are we talking about when we talk about balance? And specifically, this is part two of our discussion. Last week in episode 137, we unpacked balance. We talked about sort of how do we would even define balance? How does it relate to fairness? And now we're back to talk about really big topics like perceived balance, player-driven versus design-driven balance. Why do we even care about balance? Big questions like that. So it's going to be a really interesting, exciting episode where we dive deep on, I think, a pivotal like it's kind of like a foundational topic in games balance is really important but you almost want it to fade to the background yeah never has it been more clear to me that there's not a one clear definition of balance than in looking at our discord and people discussing our most recent episode so i think this is an important topic to dive into you know we are here to discuss and think about this not to you know, provide the end all be all. I think this is at its best. This show is the start of a conversation. And I am excited to continue where we left off and, and build on it in this one. Before we do that, Brendan, oh wait, what's that sound in the distance? It's a chugga, 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 chugga. review train. What? Yeah, we got a last minute review to keep Let's us going. Go. Thank you so much to Capster who reviewed us on iTunes. And this is a five-star review titled, This Podcast is a Solid 7, but iTunes only lets me give five. Here are the bonus <laughs> two stars. Jake and Brendan have an entertaining and informative take on board games, and I'm here for it. I used their El Grande episode as a litmus and wasn't disappointed. Their Imperial 2030, Arc Nova, and recent conversation on Push Your Luck are all spot on. Keep up the great work, gentlemen. Thank you so much for that seven-star review, Capster. <laughs> Tremendously appreciated. And I happen to know Capster is a fellow board game podcaster from the Games from the Seller podcast. Uh, and I think their kind of bit is they just rate every game as a seven, which nice. I love. So I think that's, that's where great. that solid seven is coming from. Um, but yeah, if, if you want more board game discussion, I think they're more like playing the game and then immediately reviewing it after type of vibe. So check them out if you're interested. Cool. There's no better place to start a What We Talk About episode than getting pretty philosophical. So let's start with perceived balance. So we spent a lot of the last episode talking about balance and I think more real terms, like is a game objectively balanced or not? What does that mean in terms of the decision space in the game? But there's a really nuanced aspect of the way we functionally experience games in our lives where we don't live in a world where we can all sit down and play a game 50 times or 20 times or 100 times and understand it in the nuanced way that an expert would. So perceived balance is really important because if a game is balanced but you need expert play to get there, 50 plays, 20 plays even, 100 plays let's say, functionally that game might not be balanced for a huge subset of the players that ever play it. Right. right. So if if less than 5% of players know how to counter a strategy because you have to play it 20 times to learn how to counter that strategy, is it a balanced game? Yeah, Functionally, maybe not. I th Well, so I think that we have to be really clear and say, you know, this game, that game that you're drawing up where only the top 5% of players, uh, you know, experts, the top of class are experiencing it as balanced. 
Yep. I think we have to say that that game is balanced, balanced. at the end yeah. of the day, but it doesn't matter because the vast majority of players will not experience a balanced game. Mm. They will experience a game with a dominant strategy, perhaps. And one thing I think a lot about in this conversation is uh, something that we turn to often as examples, which is video games and specifically like uh, competitive fighting video games. Uh, And there you have balance that really feels functionally different uh, at all levels of the game. Like you can easily imagine two characters in Super Smash Bros, maybe Kirby versus Fox. Uh, Mm. And people who are familiar with this game will understand this scenario. But at at beginning play, the first time you've ever played that game uh, with two people who've never played, then Kirby Kirby is going to probably win because Kirby gets a bunch of jumps that helps them to recover to the stage more often. If If you play that game between two skilled players who are you know have played the game quite a bit and have learned the mechanics well that probably feels like a very even matchup between two equally skilled you know not expert level players but competent with the game players and then at the highest level of play between two top professional players of super smash brothers fox is going to win that matchup like, you know, 80 or 90% of the time or or even higher. And, you know, and it's clear when you look only at that subsection of players that the game isn't balanced, at least insofar as that specific matchup. Um, but I think that really illuminates how even though the balance of the game at the end of the day, objectively, it's there or it's not, it really matters. What matters to me and most players is how you're experiencing and interacting with the balance of the game, which brings in other factors like your own skill level and experience. I think this there's an immediate natural follow-up question to this. So it's like, which is better? Should you design such that, should games exist such that they're ultimately balanced at expert level? Or should they be designed such that they're fair and feel balanced and perceived to be balanced for the first 20 plays, X amount of plays, even if that means at the end of the day, there might be a dominant strategy that has the game. Like if that's the trade-off we're looking at, which is better? Yeah. Go for it. I think for me, in the bo- the hobby board game landscape as it exists today, there's a clear answer to this, which is like you want your game to be balanced for the average player. Uh, I, th- I think, you know, going back to that like video game example, but translating it to a board game. You know, I don't care that a board game that I picked up and I'm playing and, 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 you know, if I enjoy it or whatever, I don't care if it's balanced after 1,000 plays because I have to be realistic and know that I'm not going to play it that many times. If that's what it takes to sort of unlock that balance equilibrium, uh, I'm going to play it, you know, if it's, if it's really good, you know, maybe 10 times, yeah. you know, Anything more than that is really a huge outlier for me. So I would want, you know, I, I, I'll i give it a pass for like play one or two. But like after that, I feel like I want for me personally to be able to play the game in a balanced fun in, in a way that I'm experiencing the game is balanced after that. Yeah, I think that 
to answer the question also, the goal is both, right? We would love for it to just be balanced at the outside. Yeah, you want to be fun continue. in the first place exactly. and then so on forever. Yeah. But then beyond that, I think it depends on what you were saying, Jake. You said the word hobby board game, right? And I think that so much like the intended audience of a game matters for how that game should be designed, right? If you're trying to design a competitive game that you hope will garner an audience by being played in tournaments, you're more worried about is this game going to hold up to... 500 plays or more, probably hopefully more versus if you're making a hobby board game, you're really investing a lot of your resources, time, obviously the big one in terms of, is this a fun experience that people are going to enjoy in their first one, three, at most five plays? And what can I do to get them there? And I do think there's some tricks though, that we all ultimately, like you were saying, Jake, at the end of the day, I think in terms of like balance, let's talk about a case study. There's this game by Martin Wallace called A Few Acres of Snow, right? So this is a, a pretty well-known uh, deck building game. At least it was maybe pretty well-known like five years ago. It's a deck building game. It came out after Dominion, but its innovation was there's a board and it's a war game and you're using your deck to deploy and move your sort of logistics of your troops around this conflict in uh, North America and like, I don't know the exact period, but like 300 years mm -hmm. ago. Uh, and it became discovered at some point that there was a re there was a broken strategy called the Halifax Hammer that completely warps the decision space and makes it such that if a player employs a strategy, they're almost always going to win. So this is an example where before this strategy was discovered, people really lauded and celebrated this game. And I now think that now that this is known, people throw this out just as I'm doing right now. Yeah. As a I way like of sort of- this is like all I know of the game. Exactly. And that's what I think makes it so interesting as a case study is that so people throw out like, oh, because this broken strategy exists, this game is less interesting. And I, I'm only bringing this up to highlight the fact that I think, Jake, you and I could go play a few acres of snow if we don't look up what the Halifax hammer, how it's actually employed. I bet we'd really enjoy the game. And yeah. I think we'd really enjoy it for our first however many plays, maybe until the game broke for us because it, of that unbalance when we discovered that strategy. But there's something about our knowledge of the fact yes, that that I'm, imbalance that's exists. That's what I was going to say too. It's like psychologically knowing it's there, I'm definitely less interested in seeking out plays of that plays game. Of it. And I think that, so when we're trying to answer that question, like which is more important, the perception that your game is balanced at expert level or at repeat plays indefinitely, I think is more important than we want it to be in reality. Like as I sit here saying like, oh, I'd be fine with the game being unbalanced, but I haven't played a few acres of snow despite knowing that I would enjoy it and having access to it. Yeah. So there's something about that that tells me I value that as a human being higher than maybe is rational, but that's mm -hmm. important because we're not rational consumers. Take that economist. I I think that's a great point and also kind of at the end of the spectrum, right? Like from yeah, what we sure. know of the game is that it's not just like unbalanced, but like broken, right? right? Like you kind of have to do this and it's possible that a game at higher level is, you know, not perfectly balanced, but not sure. broken, right? Because like a game, it's like, okay, well, you should probably be doing this because it's going to be the best choice 60% of the time, you know? that probably doesn't work great in a super high level tournament setting because it would just like create stale gameplay. But yeah. for me playing that game casually with my friends, even like learning that like, yeah, often this line of play is better. That doesn't bother me nearly as much as like a knowledge that like, oh, I should always be doing this certain thing 100% of the time. Totally. And then I think Jake, it, so if the goal is like it exists in both ways, it's both fun to play at the start. So our perception is that it's balanced from the get-go and it stays balanced throughout, but we, 
those things can come at the expense of one another at times, just given the constraints around how you balance strategies and games. I think that there's some things that you can do from a game design perspective that make it such that you you soften the learning curve and make it easier to see that certain strategies are worth exploring for new players that don't necessarily alter the strategy itself. So what I'm trying to get at is, is this, we've talked about signposting in the past, sort of the ways in which a designer might sort of say, hey, this is a strategy that you want to pursue. You can do this and you get this benefit and maybe the benefit is small, but just having some really small incentive pushes you in that direction. Or maybe I think of a game, have you ever played Citadels, Jake? Mm -mm. So Citadels is a Bruno Faduti game and there's this one power uh, that basically makes you you like take the first player, but you don't get to do anything else. And I could imagine sometimes for a newer group of players, taking going first in turn order doesn't seem that advantageous because if you don't understand the game well enough, you can't perceive the impact that could have as easily, right? That's kind of abstract for newer players. So I think they they made a really smart decision with the most recent like Fantasy Flight Wind Rider version of the game, which is that whoever is the first player has a really cool 3D printed mini that's like a molded crown that sits on a pillow. And it just looks cool. So you just want to touch it and have it. And I think that's like a soft incentive that encourages newer players to say like, oh, it's good to have this because I get to have this cool physical object in front of me. And designers of board games don't always have control over the publishing decisions of their games. But I think those are the types of little touches that can actually make a game easier to learn for newer players if done thoughtfully, where you can sort of like soft incentivize taking a certain strategy that doesn't seem appealing by blinging it out in a way. I think another way that this can be done well is in games that uh, one one example I wanted to call out is BattleCon, which we've reviewed here. And, and mm. BattleCon provides you with, uh, in the rules explanation, like these are basic characters, yeah. these are intermediate characters, and these are like expert level characters. And I think that is largely speaking to rules complexity. But I think also because of that, uh, it speaks to balance in a way where if not knowing the game, if we were to just sit down and try two expert level characters, we might feel like one just completely dominates the other because we're not able to fully understand the way that those characters are supposed to interact with the system at large. Yeah. So I really like that as a strategy that designers can employ uh, to cur- both curate a fun first play and enable sort of long-term balance and I, I think other games have that like provide players with like modules that you can add after becoming familiar with this game is doing something very similar like providing like you know maybe no asymmetric powers in the first game so people can experience like a you know a apparently balanced system and then once you are familiar with it you can start to incorporate in extra rules you know asymmetric powers whatever and that allows you to like have a better sense of how these things are supposed to interact with the system. And I think it is totally possible that, you know, in, in that example, throwing everything in at the beginning might lead to a perception that the game isn't balanced just because people aren't able to like fully grasp all the implications of, you know, different powers, different rules from the, from the get-go. Findorf is another example that we covered recently on the show, right? Findorf is cool because it's built around these cards that you need to build, they're buildings, and you have to build a, you want to build all your buildings throughout the game, so you have to build a cohesive strategy to build them all. But the game is intended that you'll draft these cards, but the opening play 
Friedman Fries, the designer, has basically created a menu that says, okay, give player one these cards, player two these cards, player three these cards. So he basically does the draft for you, which is a way of making, like, one, the perception of balance is going to be higher because, like, you're being given a, a catered menu to taste in your first play. But also, I know that that set of cards as they're distributed around the table, have just been tested more than any other combination because it's a drafting game, so you just don't test it that way after the fact. So it kind of ensures perceived balance at the outset, so you know your first play is really fair. And then you also know, just because it's a hobby-style board game, like if Jake, if you've played that game 10 times and you want to introduce it to a new group, you're still probably going to win if you play with that menu of cards that you're supposed to dole out, but it'd probably be lead to a more fair game if you played it that way, rather than just cracking the box and saying, get ready to draft y'all. And yeah. Jake, you're coming in with all this like card pool knowledge that no one else has, right? So it gives you that flexibility. And I think that that's a, another really good way that you can deal with this issue of perceived balance. And so yeah. Else. And I think it's a great example of Findorf too, because those cards themselves are not balanced, right? right? There are be- ones that are strictly better than others. And so if that's the case in your game, that's fine, but you have to do something to mediate that. So in this case, it's prescribing who gets what cards or putting it into the hands of players to balance themselves via a draft. Yeah. And that's, it's such a good point that you just made, Jake. Like one of the most interesting things about Findorf is that those cards aren't created equal. You lead to a more interesting drafting game if you, if the power level of cards varies. So if some are stronger, some are weaker, that makes for a more nuanced, interesting draft when you have juxtaposed decisions, rather than if everything just was roughly like a two-point sink. Like every time you make a drafting decision, that's not that interesting. If you draw a card, you're if you draft a card, you basically get this payoff, which leads into our next topic perfectly. I see what you were doing, Jake. And it's that some games rely on sort of players to to balance out the game because coming in with their own decisions basically to keep each other in check, to have agency over what options you're passing the other players. And some games are just more the designer is taking complete control of the systems. They've really calibrated the strategic balance of different paths. And there's things that might push it in different directions. But these are really like the two dichotomies of balance in games, player balance and designer balance. So I think we should talk about this. This is a big subject. And I think we should start with Root as an example of the way players are supposed to balance a game. Yep. Likely most of our listeners are familiar with Root. It's sort of a... People call this like a coin game, right? Yep. But each player has like wildly different asymmetric factions that interact with the game system in completely different ways. And there are some that are just stronger than others. Uh, However, people who are experienced root players, which we are not, uh, will tell you that that's actually fine or even good that they're unbalanced because it leaves it in the hands of the players to you know, make sure that the person that has the more powerful faction uh, is not left unchecked, right? Players will seek out to check that player more than somebody who's using an underpowered faction. And because there's sort of this knowledge is out there about what factions are strong, what factions are weak, Pete in our Discord was saying that in competitive root games, sometimes players even prefer taking the weaker faction, knowing that they'll be left to their own devices much more than the person who's selected the overpowered faction. And the game system itself gives players enough agency to you know, self-balance, right? Make sure that overpowered faction doesn't run away with the game. So I think that this is a really interesting thing, right? So basically, Jake, what you're saying is, is that in player balance games, the disparate parts factions, different 
which really represent kind of strategic paths in a way, not directly, but kind of, could be inherently unbalanced on purpose. One is stronger, one is weaker. But the really important thing in player balanced games is that players are given the tools to identify these power imbalances, and even more importantly, given the agencies they need to address these power imbalances, right? So in games like Root, you do this through co collaboration. You talk through the situation at the at the table with the other players. You say, hey, y'all, Jake is playing as these like rat mice warlords. He's parading across the whole map. We have to team together and stop him. And the benefit of these player balance-driven games is that you can model more realistic conflicts. In real life, things aren't always balanced, right? Mm -hmm. And it's more interesting to potentially, or it is interesting that games can exist that more accurately maybe represent real life in terms of simulating a conflict. So if balances don't exist the way that you have to address them, we still all want meaningful play. So we want to feel like balance is possible, but so you're giving players agencies to address those imbalances. Another great example of that is a game like Cosmic Encounter. Again, another asymmetric game where players have these unique alien powers that can broadly vary in terms of how powerful they are, but you have the agency as a player to give people the potential to win or not to a degree. You can bring people along to kind of help them if and help you if they're behind. You cannot allow people to come along to potentially colonize a planet, which is the victory condition, getting five of those if they're ahead. So there's levers that players can pull on. And I think that a huge appeal of these player balance games for people who enjoy them is that you the connection point between all the experience is the interaction of consuming the game together and talking through the game state. Uh, obviously, negotiating. Negotiation, exactly. And there might be deception there, all of these sorts There's of things. There's all kinds of really clever ways people negotiate in this game. Like they might say, I'm not winning, this other person's winning. And then that <laughs> person might reply, no, I'm not winning. You should go after that person that said that. Clearly they're winning. <laughs> you know, it's, it's crazy how variable the ways people negotiate in these games are have you been i mean i just came up with that have you ever heard anything like that <laughs> i've i've never experienced anything like that jake i don't know what you're talking about yeah. as a fan of these type of games <laughs> so yeah i mean clearly like people love these kind of player balance Balanced. game but i do think like i think they can be group dependent because they're like it, it does sort of require a people buy in too, and I think B more importantly, it like it really requires like similar skill level because yeah. it can be really frustrating to be playing this game against like an experienced player, like Root for example. Anytime I've played Root, I've played with people who like really know Root well, and they'll be like, "Well, you have to attack this person because they're like the vagabond, and the vagabond wins unless you like attack yeah. them." And it's like, okay, like it would be impossible for me to like know that without, you know, in my first play. So I guess I just like have to take your word for it. But then just like taking somebody's word for something in a game that's like functionally pivoting around like people's ability to like negotiate and like get the best deals. It just feels like, okay, well, I'm just giving up the goat one way or another. And I think that because of that, like increased burden on player balance games to have equal skill, one of the ways that some games try to address that, and I don't know that a lot of games succeed in this pursuit. I think that's just something that these games run into and it's really tough to avoid. But Cosmic Encounter tries to address this by there being a fairly high degree of variance in the tools that are given to certain players. There's these like combat cards that really range in value from like very low numbers all the way up to 40. 
Um, so that gives you a lot of potential for if a player is not as skilled to make a, a pretty large impact on the game. If they can get that card in play at the right time compared to someone who has maybe a more reserved hand and has to play uh, with a more limited set of resources. I think that's one way that these games try to address them. And then this is a spectrum too, of course. Jake, I want to talk about El Grande. Do you think El Grande is an example of a player-balanced game? I, I do in the small case of players get start on a random territory, and those yeah. territories provide different level of benefit, right? Some give you four points for holding them, some give you six. So if I start in a territory that gives me four points for a majority in it and you start at six and somebody else starts at five or whatever, there is a little bit of incentive like, well, we have to make sure Brendan doesn't just get to like have that six points for free or even less about you getting it. It's just I'm incentivized to get majority there because it's worth more points. People are less incentivized to come into my territory because it's worth fewer points. Yep. And speaking about, you know, this this onus on these player balance games to give players the agencies they need to have to address imbalances. I think the king, the king is this mechanic in El Grande. Uh, you can only place, this is an area control game where you're putting your cubes of your own color on the board into territories. If you control the most, you're going to score more points during scoring periods. We covered it back in episode 26. And we also talked about it a lot in our Wolfgang Kramer and Michael Kiesling episode that we did recently. But the king makes it such that you cannot place in the territory where the king is and can only place adjacent to it. And I think that tool gives players enough agency that allows them to balance somewhat. And the game also does an important thing that it informs players of who's in the lead. It has a score tracker on the outside. If you don't have a score tracker on the outside, uh, it's really hard to have more directly player balanced games uh, because players then have to have this discussion of, well, who's even in the lead in the first place, which can be interesting, uh, but it gives it a very different feel where if there's points on the board printed, you have this objective truth that you're all working with and towards that can, I think, change the tenor of those arguments away from a game like maybe Zuvatis, another negotiation player balance game that we've talked about a lot that I really like, but all the victory points are hidden until the end of the game. So it's harder to sort of say, no, Jake is objectively in the lead. We all have to find a way to address that. You should do this. You know, Jake can then say, I'm not in the lead. I, yeah. I pulled bad tokens. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And Zuvatis is an ex example of a game where you wouldn't want that information to be public because then it would just like, I think, make the negotiation so much more like math based. It's like, I can yeah. afford to make you pay me this much. And if you are exact, right? It breaks the game. Yeah. You just don't want, you wouldn't want that. But I do think objective information is really important here. Uh, and El Grande having, you know, not just the score track, but I could just see, okay, if we scored now, boom, you're getting this many points or whatever. I think that's something I would like to see more in games. I, I can't really think of a rule book that tells you, like, these factions aren't balanced. Mm. Like, these ones are strong. These ones yeah. are middle and these ones are weaker. Of course, that's like the first thing that players sort of in a community on Board Game Geek, whatever, start putting Post. together on their own anyway. Yeah. But it would be awesome if a game... I think I think it would take a certain amount of like bravery from a publisher or a designer yeah. because balance is, you know, typically it's like balance good, unbalanced bad. bad. So yeah. to like put in your rule book like this is this part of the game isn't balanced, uh, and here's some information about you know how these are relative to each other. 
But that would be really cool in a game like Root. That that would make it so even in a first play, I, I'm less just like taking the word of the more experienced person. And yeah. I can say like, wait a second, you're saying that we have to stop that person, but you're the one with the three power faction. Yeah. And that one's just a two and your equal space is on the scoring track. You know, it could give some recourse, some ability to feel like you have more agency, especially when you're dipping your toes in with more experienced players. Yeah. And you, based on what we were talking about, you know, simulating these more nuanced, more real life situ or real to life, I shouldn't say real life, real to organic real world conflicts, you could probably thematically make for a really interesting game if you sort of did that too and laid it out. Just one final thought on that, because I think it does speak right to that sort of perceived balance and like what what are you balancing mm. the game for? Because maybe discovering that on your own is part of the fun, right? Like right. the Findorf cards, like what if the rule book said these S-tier. five are yeah. the S tier cards you should always take first and then yeah. you know try and build your strategy around those or whatever. It you would lose something in like the discoverability of the game. Like it is fun to be kind of figuring out which cards I like and which ones less so. But it would definitely make the game more approachable to draft with newer yeah. players. So it's a trade-off right. right there. Yep. That's really interesting. Another example that I could think of of player balanced games, Jake, is the Castles of Mad King Ludwig. Uh, this is a tile laying game in which players are drafting these tiles of different types, trying to build castles uh, that sort of what's next to what will synergize, how many tiles you have a certain type can matter. And if you get the right tile, it, uh, certain tiles can be much more advantageous for certain uh, players' castles than others. So that means that if you don't have a system to sort of player balance, you could have a lot of luck that could make it such that someone just draws into a tile that's really valuable, they're going to buy it, they immediately win. So the way that the designer of the castles of Mad King Ludwig decided to address this potential problem is there's a master builder. So every round they'll draw, I, I don't remember the specifics exactly, but there's like five tiles that are for sale and they all have certain prices associated with them. So whoever's the master builder that get, that turn gets to choose which tiles cost how much. And it, it's that simple. And then the master builder gets any money spent on those tiles. So you have this interesting, like I'm trying to price things just right. You have a real incentive to because you want people to be paying you money. Uh, but also you have the ability to say, wow, this tile is going to be really, really strong for this one player. I have to make it more expensive. So it's a way that the designer of that has added player-driven balance to soften the edges of variance potentially and make for some interesting pricing decisions. I think the flip side of that is that you can have some analysis paralysis around like, oh gosh, like I really have to look at everyone's things and think through what the right price here is. Uh, and this does make player skill even more important because you could blunder and just make a really strong tile too cheap and that could throw the game. But it's an interesting vehicle, especially when there's roughly equal skilled players to have players setting prices in a game. Yeah. Isle of Sky is a game that I I haven't played in a long time, but I really need to get it back to the table, which does something very similar where yeah. everybody draws three tiles, two they're putting up for auction, they're setting the price, and then the third they're just axing and removing from the game. And that's always a really fun decision. decision. Mm -hmm. that's so, yeah, I, think th I, I think there's a lot of novel ways that player-driven balance can exist. 
that for me, I prefer just for my own taste than just saying like, here's the game and now, you know, negotiate your way out of this kind of puzzle that's been laid for you. Yeah, totally. I think another one that came to mind, and maybe this can be our final example and we can move on, but is a game like Keyflower. Keyflower is kind of a game, I think that one of the best examples I can think of where it relies so much on designer balance to make sure all of the tiles are roughly equally fair, can fit into a variety of strategies, uh, etc. But also really player dra- balance driven because not all of the tiles in Keyflower are going to come out every game if you're playing at lower player counts, which means that the potential for certain tiles to score uh, can really increase or decrease based on the pool of tiles. If it's easier to make a certain resource, the payoff tiles that give you points for having that resource are going to be more valuable than in in a game where it's hard for those to happen. Uh, So Keyflower does this by making everything an auction. (laughs) The ability to acquire new tiles is an auction and the ability to use tiles is kind of an auction because you can basically all tiles are worker placement locations, but you could open up by bidding more than just one worker. So you can kind of say like the first action in this is worth more to me and I want to block Jake from getting to use it. Uh, So it gives players, again, a lot of agency over kind of cost things uh, that I think rides that line really nicely. And for people who like interactive games, partially what they might be saying is also, I like there to be some player-driven balance in my games. Yeah, I don't want it to just be designer balance. Well said. I think that is an excellent point that I hadn't thought about in that way. And we've talked a little bit on this podcast about sort of like, what is it with these people that hate multiplayer solitaire so much, right? Like everything... What like the inevitable pull towards higher interaction in games, you know, and it may be nothing more or at least partially due to just that, right? I want yeah. my games to be player-driven balance to the fore, which is yep. a, 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 an interesting thing for, I think, our listeners to consider about themselves. Yeah, how much player-driven balance do you want in your game? Yeah, are you a Great. Brendan or a Jake? Like, yeah. I'll take Let the us designer's know. version of balance, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I like player-driven balance. I don't know, it's fun. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I mean, I, I like it at times too, of course. I'm being a little dramatic. But, Brendan, so we've talked about these different types of balance, where we talked a lot about uh, player-driven balance. Um, I think designer-driven balance needs less of an introduction, right? That's just yeah. making sure sort of i think one point i would like to bring out about this uh is something that i was thinking about talking uh with seth jaffe in our discord after the last episode about you know is the game balanced and he pointed out that there can sort of be two versions of that systems balance and content balance um so like system balance is like the game mechanisms themselves right do they come together in a way that creates the experience of balance and then content balance is sort of like, are there certain like specific things in the system that are unbalanced in that system and could like easily be tweaked and removed? So a good example of that is Bruges. We sort of talked about mm. it on the last episode saying it's not a balanced game because it's got this one card that <laughs> the astronomer that's like overpowered. And Seth's point was like, it's possible that the game system is balanced it's just that this one card is unbalanced like over tuned in how well it synergizes with the rest of the system so you know if we want to be really hardcore like we were on the last episode we say like well objectively the game isn't balanced because of the existence of this card which i think is fair uh, but it is i think an important distinction to make that just because you know 
something in your game perhaps is creating unbalance that maybe your game is okay. You just need to like real rein that one card back in or remove it or player power or whatever. Totally. Which is also, you know, like the history of competitive magic, the gathering is them doing just that with ban lists of sort of saying, we know the system works. These cards went too far. We're going to remove them. And now we'll have a balanced game. We just have to yeah. remove these three cards or you can only play one of this card uh, and that will fix the problem. I think that's a, a really good point of thinking through is the game unbalanced because the systems are are not are inherently unbalanced in some way. That's a lot like the the player turn order that we were talking about. Right, like tic-tac-toe is never going to be balanced, yeah. right? Because it's too dominated by the first player. Yep. Or they could try like removing X's. Yeah, yeah, just all, all doing O's now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Somehow it sounds interesting. About as interesting. <laughs> or yeah, is there just an element you can remove and there's an, a single element that's unbalanced? Okay, but Jake, we've kind of hinted at this throughout and maybe just for you and I, these two notes kind of, two next sections kind of are one and the same, I think. Uh, but I want to start with a quote. That, but what we're talking about here mostly is like, why do we care about balance? And do all the games even need to be balanced? So in episode 91 of Ludology, I love this episode. It's like one of my favorite episodes of another podcast ever. So I like to plug it when I can. Uh, it's a episode with Peter Alaka, one of the designers of Cosmic Encounter. And the title of the episode was like Alaka Encounter. But in this, there's this famous quote, at least it's famous to me, uh, where Peter Alaka says balance is for weenies. Uh, and I think that's a really interesting philosophy that runs very perpendicular to like what you, you would see as Jake and I have been alluded to on like message boards about games now. I also think it's much more direct than the internet would typically allow for, which is refreshing, but also you know, I hope you'll excuse the like maybe put down slightly, but it, it conveys this point pretty directly that like there are reasons why you might not want your game to be balanced. So with that, Jake, why do we why do we care? Why are we having a two episode discussion on balance at all? And again, we've hinted about it, but maybe we can synthesize a lot of what we've been talking about here. Yeah, well, part of it subjectively, I think, is that the question we brought up at the beginning of episode one, it's like you hear the term balance thrown around a lot and I'm not sure that we have a clear definition of what people are talking about. If I listen to another po podcast, board game podcast or YouTube reviewer, and they say like, yeah, we had fun with this game, but we think it's not balanced like for X, Y, and Z reason. I don't know what to do with that information because generally I don't have enough context. Like, have you played it 20 times? And, <laughs> right. you know, I've found in like plays like 18, 19, 20, this was rising to the front. Or have you played it once? And somebody lapped the table doing one particular thing. And then, you know, it was just decided that that is too strong. So I think that is why I care about this is like understand having better terminology for us and others uh, to to discuss balance. Does it and then the second part of that is like, does it matter? I think it definitely does for a variety of reasons. I yeah. think a big part of it is, as you brought up earlier in this episode, is sort of the psychological barrier that like I want to know. I think part of it, I think it's about trust. Like mm. I'm when I play a game, I'm trusting that it is going to be enable me to like create fun and meaningful decisions and that yeah. like time I spent into this game will be rewarded both in fun that I'm having playing it uh, and in like, you know, improvement and learning capable in this game. And if I know that the game is, you know, at the ultimate level, unbalanced, broken because certain things 
you know, whether that's content or system, whatever, I think it does undermine sort of why I am going to the game and what I appreciate about games yep. generally. Searching for meaningful play, wanting your play to not be frivolous, for there to be to be meaning behind it. And balance helps ensure that in some ways. Mm-hmm. I think also it, balance just helps keep games interesting because it affords players variable decisions, right? If a game stops being balanced, there stop being as interesting of a decision space. There's every time you play it, you're executing a strategy that you know you should be doing, not necessarily creatively finding one and getting feedback as how it plays out. And I think one of the fun things about a game is the ability to engage with an object that then gives you feedback or a table of players, uh, and then to react and respond. We don't yeah. want to just be robots. We want to be players who are playing a game and seeing what happens, you know? And when right. a game stops being balanced, you start to feel like a robot executing a strategy. If you're maybe playing a hyper-competitive game, maybe you're willing to do that to win money, but it's not fun. You're there for a different reason. Right. I think both of us kind of said the same thing there, which can be distilled down to meaningful decisions. Like without balance, you don't get meaningful decisions. You don't get meaningful play. And I think with that is like meaning, you know, I think something that's maybe really more, possibly more important to us than others. But I think one thing that both of us come to games for and really take out of games is like learning, right? And Mm -hmm. meaningful feedback, which feeds into learning gaining more understanding about the game. And again, if that's not balanced at the end of the day, then it does feel like that like learning and ability to level up and improve your play and discover more about the system is undermined as well. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe we can talk about Jake then too, like what happens when a game gets overbalanced or underbalanced? Like what are the, what's so bad about it? Like what are the fears of a game being overtuned or undertuned in terms of its balance? So let's start with... Let's start with undertune, maybe. Okay, let's start with right? under underbalance. That's okay. so I'd be like unbalanced, right? Right. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, okay. So the woes of underbalancing a game, like this, is an unbalanced game, and I w- yeah. is that a game starts to feel meaningless, right? It feels like I'm sitting down at the table. Maybe whoever gets the right asymmetric power is going to win. Maybe whoever gets lucky is going to win. It, all of a sudden, if a game is unbalanced, it means that your player agency starts to dwindle away. So you start to feel like when you're making decisions at the table, those decisions don't have a great impact. Other things about the nature of experience have a great impact on the game. So that's when we talk about the game starts to feel frivolous, but it's feeling frivolous because of a lack of agency. I'm yeah. doing things, but they don't matter. And that's not fun. I I also think, yeah, fun is huge here, right? Yeah. It's, it's less fun because of that. And also because... I think there's an element of like roteness that often comes into it, right? We're always doing the same thing in this system. And you've talked a little bit about how, you know, you don't always, you know, not every path, right? Right, left, center has to be equally good, but you want to make sure the one that you should be doing more often is the most fun. Yeah. And I think that is true and a great point, but also like not every single player is going to find fun in all the same places. So if I love Kirby, you know, (laughs) Kirby is my favorite character uh, in Nintendo's lineup for Super Smash Brothers. It's not enough to me to say like, well, most players think that Fox is more fun. So like we've improved, you know, that mechanics there too. I was like, well, like that's cool and all like, and I enjoy playing Fox from time to time, but I really want to play Kirby, Kirby, you know? So I think you do want to make sure that 
I, you know, I, for me, I want to make sure that like the past available, the things that you can do in the game are all viable or are reasonably viable enough percent of the time that the people who f- have fun doing whatever that thing is get to be rewarded as well as the players who get to have fun doing the other thing. And in a board game that might look like, you know, seeking out conflict and doing fights in a game versus yeah. somebody that's like, I actually like would rather like build my home and be more like defensive and, you know, only fight at a, as a last resort. Yeah. And I would think that a game that has that type of mechanism is best served that when, you know, players can have fun doing either thing. Yeah. At absolutely. the same time, you know, to push back about when games can be unbalanced, if your game is like bloodshed, the ultimate war game for people who love fighting, then I think, you know, in that sense, it has it, a different can, design goal. It can be okay if like in that game, turtling is not viable because it's sure. like, no, we're here to do fighting, sure. you know, and we're signposting that to everyone. So maybe yeah. if you don't want to do fighting, stay away. <laughs> yeah, interesting. I want to give an example of a game that might be perceived to be like underbalanced, but to great effect. I think ultimately this game is still balanced, so it's maybe not totally fair. But I want to give an example of each of these two categories where I think a game that's kind of pushing up against the edges of being balanced while still kind of like leaning towards this category, and that's innovation. I think innovation has a huge range in terms of the potential of card effects and powers. And that makes it really exciting. You get to activate the potential of like, it can be fun to play with broken tools. And while we still want our games to be balanced, it's really fun to get to play a balanced game that lets you play with broken stuff sometimes. And I think innovation captures that potential where there's these like, this is a card tableau building game where you can have explosive effects that are just doing wild things in front of you. And that's really fun. And there's reasons why actually being a player who gets to play with an unbalanced tool is enjoyable. It's, you know, I don't need to go into more examples, but like, I guess I'm going to go into one. When I was like 14 playing Halo 2, I never modded my game. But when other people were playing with like modded characters or whatever, I was like, wow, that looks really cool, you know? And I think that like as players, there's this potential to like, we all at some level want power. So sometimes Mm -hmm. having imbalanced things is getting to experience power in a game system. And I think innovation and trying to like lean towards like how close to the edge of balance can I get is letting you play with agencies of power in an interesting way. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I'm thinking about Magic the Gathering where like you can create unbalanced game states where everybody knows that the game is over. But especially, and you know, and obviously if you're like in a tournament and your opponent concedes, you should be like, okay. Thank you. Okay, great. Thank you. But like yeah. when you're like playing a kid as a kid and you finally pull off your combo that gives you infinite mana, yeah. you don't want your opponent to conceive. You're like, no, no, I want to like let me play it out. I'm gonna yeah, let's let's play it out. You know, I want to like fireball you for a billion real quick. Yeah, totally, <laughs> totally. Whatever. Yeah, I, I had very similar experiences like that at Keyforge tournaments occasionally too, where it was yeah. like it's casual play. Let's watch what happens. Yeah, I have memories. Of you know, especially as a kid playing, I think so. You will see little kids playing Magic all over the world, all the time to this day, with these like enormous boards and just not swinging because it's fun that they have like created this game state where they have all the power and they could end it at any time. But yeah, they're but they make you suffer. <laughs> yeah, they just want to hold the the hammer above you. Yeah, yeah. totally. 
And that's a fun agency to explore going back to like CT win stuff. But then let's talk about the flip side. There's the woes of overbalancing a game. So this is where uh, I think a game starts to feel flat because everything accomplishes about the same thing. It doesn't matter if I do. It's not frivolous because randomly something's going to be messed up. It's frivolous because if I do A or B, I get two points. So should I do A or B? Oh, it doesn't matter. I'm going to get two points. So I don't, I'm not invested in my decisions because I'm getting roughly the same thing either time. With an overbalanced game, there's also no progression or learning. If a game is underbalanced or, you know, there's learning to do. If some strategy is better than another, you need to learn what that strategy is so you can exploit it to some extent. And in a balanced game, right, the idea is that not all strategies are best all the time. So you need to learn when to do what. Uh, but in an underbalanced game, sort of like, well, if I do anything, I'm going to get about the same payout. So it doesn't really matter. I'm not going to feel that invested in this. So I'm getting the same sort of thing. And then another way of saying both these things is a, it's just kind of like samey. There's a lack of texture to the play. It's kind of like having uh, the same soup for every meal for a week. Even if it's really good soup, it's still like kind of the same thing. So you get tired of it because there's no variance in play. Uh, and then to give an example, a game that gets pretty close to this while still being a really amazing game that Jake and I really enjoy and won the spiel, I think it won the counter spiel DRs, is a Phil Walker Harding game, Imhotep, where your actions give you basically like between one and three points, maybe one and two and a half points every turn. But there's lots of interesting decisions in that game that keep it engaging and meaningful despite you riding on razor thin margins. And it largely comes down to the allure of the fact that you could have like a 10 point swing turn that in practice will probably never come. But it's an awesome game. And I think it's a, a great example of when you can kind of like more finely tune it and almost overbalance to good effect. Yeah, it's interesting. I guess like an overbalanced game, I think a sign of that can be that every game you're like within a few points of each other, oh, Sure, which yeah. is sounds great. You know, it's like, oh, wow, we were within just like a couple points. But then like three, four games in, like, yeah, we're just within a couple points. Like it yeah. feels kind of manufactured. Flat. Or yeah, like, yeah, we're, all, we're always going to be within a couple of points. It can kind of create the same thing. Like where is it worth my time to continue to learn and, you know, play this game it might start to have the same exact problems right as an underbalanced yeah. game where if we're always within a couple of points sometimes i win sometimes i lose like for the same reason as when there's like a big runaway leader i might feel like okay i don't actually have meaningful choices here because it's always gonna be the same outcome no matter yeah. what and it's the same with like the learning right it's like well there's not really a lot of value to learn here because no matter what scores are just like in such a tight band yeah now that's not going to be true of every single game like an emotep i think is a good example that like there is enough to learn and enough to think through that you know even though games are going to be like relatively close like the good player is almost always going to be edging out you know and getting yep. the win more often than not so i think i do think that game works despite being close to this I think there's also yeah. a ton of tension in Imhotep just in the gameplay itself, such that you don't necessarily like it feels tense the whole time. So you don't need the scoring to give you this like pop of tension at the end. Whereas my counterpoint might be so like if it always comes out to like we're all within three or four points in the 20s, that's fine. Uh, but the flip side is a game like Ark Nova, a game that we've played where points can go up to like, I don't even know, really high, like the 200s or something, right? If there's a tie in that game, it feels like a momentous occasion. It's something remarkable that you can go and tell your friends about because it feels so unlikely. Yeah. 
Whereas if a game plays to 10 points and you're either going to score 8, 9, or 10 points every time, it's not remarkable if you tie and there's a tiebreaker that sorts it out. And I think that it this is kind of like, it just depends. It's only exciting to have a close game if it's possible it's to do bad. Yeah, exactly. And exactly. I think there's a lot of games that just the guardrails are so tight to the lane yep. that's impossible to do truly bad. Yeah, one thing that I found over the course of this show that I really like is games that allow for high highs and low lows. And yeah. you, you don't get that in overbalanced games, right? Yep. You just get the midpoint all the time. And I do think that's that's a negative, though, you know, it's totally player preference because a game like Bruise that allows through no fault of your own, you just don't get the right kinds of cards that you need and you're scoring 40 while somebody else is scoring like 115, in that moment, you're not experiencing that game as balanced. You're like, well, they're getting all these synergies and the car, you know, and I'm getting crap. So there's trade-offs both ways for sure. I think yeah. I would I would rather an underbalanced game than an overbalanced one more often than not. I think that's to both of our tastes for the most part. Yeah. Okay, so then going back to that question, do all games need to be balanced? Uh, no. Right. Like that's just a no. There's a multitude of reasons why we play games. We talked about how a balance imbalances in games can actually evoke and communicate and help simulate our real imbalanced world. And I think that in general, you know, competitive games probably have a greater need to be balanced. We've talked about how a game like Diplomacy is maybe not balanced in terms of what countries people are playing but it relies on player balance to kind of make that a meaningful play experience. Um, but I, then I think beyond that, you know, if we're not thinking about competitive games and whether they're uh, player-driven balanced or design-driven balanced competitive games, you can just have experiential games that don't need to be balanced and they can still be meaningful because by playing them, we're having a meaningful experience that we're going to take away with us as a human. Uh, and I think there's lots of reasons why I might be interested in playing a game that doesn't feel fair, that isn't balanced, but I'm going to have a takeaway that's more interesting. I do think these games typically probably lean, start to lean into a, a more niche space than hobby board games towards sort of like historical games or... Yeah, I say uh, war like, games are a great example of this, right? Yep. Where people are like, yeah, you're, you're not playing war game for a balanced scenario because of course, right. like one side actually won that conflict, you know, yep. or that battle. Yeah, totally. Or, you know, I've never played it, but the game Freedom the Underground Railroad is a game about uh, like the Underground Railroad in the United States at a point where uh, slaves were trying to escape from the South. And there was a whole network of people trying to help them escape, uh, which that's a game that probably wasn't balanced, isn't balanced, right? But there's a reason why it's trying to convey something about the real world through this interesting mechanism of play. Right. Yeah, I think I think it's a great point. And I don't want to end here because I think it's just like so meta. But it, one thing I was thinking about is sort of with like we know that neural networks are better at playing games than people, mm, right? Sure. Like, like uh, what is it like Deep Blue has beaten the Go master. And that was yeah, yeah. like a big point for computing power at playing games. And us. Like this might be an obvious point, but I don't want a game that's balanced for neural computers. network computers. Like yeah. I would much rather play a game that is unbalanced for them, but balanced for humans. Yeah. <laughs> right. And like particularly yeah. uh, humans who are, you know, have learned the rules of the game and played it a couple of times. And now we can get into it and have a great time. 
Whereas, you know, by our definition of balance, like if, if a game that, you know, we played a hundred times and it all felt great to us, if it was not balanced for a neural network computing power, like that doesn't, I don't care about that yeah. uh, at that point, because like what I really want in a balanced game is to like experience the game as balanced. And I kind of think it's just like an unfortunate consequence that like my stupid human mind can't help but like psychologically like shun games that I have knowledge of as being unbalanced, even though like I maybe haven't got to that point in my own, which I just want to end my, this ramble maybe as important notes. Like I think us as reviewers, mm-hmm. since we are kind of board game reviewers, but to like the larger hobby and even people who just like play games and just like throw up a review on board game geek, y'all are reviewers too, or in the discord, whatever, like let's hesitate before calling a game unbalanced yeah. and maybe just try and use more specific language and, you know, or talk about your personal experience with the game because i really think just like throwing that around there can like psychologically really undermine other people's enjoyment of the game and it may just be you may just be wrong you know maybe just had like three or four really like weird plays to do with just like random chance roll the dice like whatever so yeah i think like let's just let's just be careful with that as a community yeah it's a powerful word I think that's a, a really good reminder, Jake. Even if we occasionally like calling things busted. Yeah, we have done that ourselves, haven't we? Yeah, yeah. But it's fun. <laughs> it's also fun. And as long as you're doing it in jest, you know. But I, I do think that's a, a really important point that, you know, because of our behavior is so crafted, shaped by our perceptions around if a game is balanced or not, it's good to be sure before making claims like that. And there's a lot, a lot, a lot that goes into being able to determine if a game actually is in balance and can, in most cases, goes far beyond the experience of one play group right. for a variety of reasons. I feel like this was a really, that's a really good place to stop. I am so glad you sort of gave us that rumination on Deep Blue and like games designed for humans, because I feel like it highlights just how massive this this topic is you know we did a two-part episode on balance and it's the first two-part what we talk about we've ever done i feel like if we really wanted to we could probably do a third week uh and make another interesting episode we will not we will spare you all but maybe there's more to be said we're not doing that (laughs) we're not doing that but there's more you know maybe there's more to be said about about balance in the future and it's a topic i'm sure we'll return to if not in its own episode just in lots of episodes as we discuss how it impacts the decisions in games yeah Absolutely. I would love to do that. But anyway, let's just say for our pre-planners, we're, we're still thinking about covering games like Santa Monica and Torres. We're also thinking perhaps Raw could be one that we'll cover down the line this year. And we're still trying to figure out how in the world we're going to cover Food Chain Magnate for y'all. Um, but hopefully sooner rather than later, Brendan, I will start getting plays of that too Thank you all so much for listening to us this week on Decision Space. Brendan, anything else you want to shout out before we wrap up? You should follow us on Instagram. Jake does an awesome job highlighting his recent gameplay experiences with the Laughing Table friends, talking about games that I think will inform a lot of things we cover on the show. It's a great way to stay up to date with recently released episodes. So just search for Decision Space on Instagram and you'll find uh, the Instagram account. I'll also post there occasionally too. Jake, I promise I'll try to do it more. And then also... Uh, check out our website, decisionspacepodcast.com for more, including a link to our Discord uh, where you can come and have real life discussions with
with people who love games like you who listen to the show. A ton of people have been joining the Discord lately. It's been like a, a revolving door. I feel like I'm in Grand Central Station. People just like running in and we're like, hey, welcome. And then it's crazy. It's really active. So please come continually make it active. Find people to talk about games, game design with. Uh, we'd love to see you there. And until next week, uh, thank you to Hembry for our intro and outro song, Reach Out. Bye. Uh, bye. Close enough.